0: This episode is brought to you by rad dudes who love nature.
1: So, uh, welcome to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. Um, we've got an extra big crew today. Uh, you got me, Billy Brown. You
2: got Tony Crowsdale. Mike McGraw. Matthew Havid.
1: All right. So, um, we are going to start with some more, with another comment. What you got there, Tony? So, we uh, <clears>
0: received <throat> this uh, email from Vijay Patel from Mumbai, who's really, thinks we should do... Uh, Episode on the on black kites, so black kites and black yeah. ear, ear, eared kites, um, they're um, in the Milvus genus. They're um,
1: how would you pronounce that properly?
2: Milvus. Milvus. <laughs> they are
0: um, um, <clears throat> they are hawks, you know, um, that kind of take the role of like gulls and crows and or like black vultures, but in like tropical cities in the old world. Okay, and so if They're, you're there, they, they hang thick, around thick and, in Bangalore. They hang around yeah, in parking yeah. lots and like go after yeah, the, the trash. Yeah, if you're in Hong stuff? Kong, there's also yellow oh, okay. kites in uh, East Africa, and so you're just like chilling these, like you know, Hong Kong and like flying around. You know, Hong Kong looks, looks like Blade Runner, and and, <laughs> and there's mm-hmm. I mean it's the craziest city I've, I've ever seen. I mean, I, I've been to like a bunch of countries in Asia, and I think Hong Kong takes the cake and um, it puts Japan to shame, in my opinion. And flying around these skyscrapers is all these black-eared kites, and they're really cool. I once saw them grab out of a shrub a whole nest of a you know some kind of you know I don't know what kind of species of bird it was, but they're and then eat the chicks out of the nest in flight. Wow! So they mostly bad. scavenge.
2: So when we say that they're you know an anal, an old world analog to black vultures in the Neotropics, yeah. Um, in the Neotropics, the black vultures also opportunistically eat fruit, and so there's a lot of rotting fruit in the, in the, uh, you know, dumps around the city. So black vultures are scavenging and so yeah. big flocks. Well, it looks like we need to do an episode on black vultures are, as well. Yeah. But are these black kites? Um, I, I, me- I remember seeing huge swarms of black kites in, in Bangalore and in Southern India and also in Mysore and some of these other cities. But do you think that they're also, um, om- Even, omnivorous? Or? I don't know. I, I I'll need to look in the literature. It's, it's quite possible. Well, I
3: can uh, add to that. Last night, I thought you were there to hear it. Katie, my colleague from Penn, she lived in... Well, maybe it was the the yellow what kite? The yellow build kite. yellow build yellow Billed 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 Billed. kite. She, There's a whole she, kite
0: complex. She grew up in
3: Africa, and uh, she said that when she was uh, in school, they'd sit outside eating French fries, and they'd get mobbed by these crazy old aerial displays from kites that would pimp their... French fries, right out of their hands. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) like I said, like...
1: ring-build goals... Wait, which goal... Which of the goals will, like, take your sandwich out of your hands here? Ring-build or laughing. Laughing goals goals will do it. But, yeah, I mean,
0: because, you you know, you think about goals as being, like, ubiquitous, but then you go to, like, the tropics and there's barely a goal to be found in, in, you know, in these coastal areas. And they're not in the cities, you know, scavenging... And there's not crows in a lot of these cities. Some places there are, you know, there'll be jungle crow, house crows, whatever, but in some cities there's no crows, there's no gulls, and it's just these kites.
1: Okay. Well there you go. So we're actually gonna talk about rattlesnakes in a second, but I've been I've been sort of fixating I don't know, fixating, I've been getting more interested in the idea of plants and animals that don't necessarily eat us, so not parasites, but that live in the, let's say, the habitats we create just as, as part of how we live. Um, and I was calling them all commensals. I learned that there's a word for this, synanthrope, Or and I defer to someone who might know how to pronounce it better, but I'm saying that for now. Um, and I'm going to bet the adjective would be synanthropic. synanthropic. Okay, cool, we're all agreeing on this? Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Fine, all right. Indeed. Um, and so I was, I was first thinking about it in, in terms of plants that um, – uh, when you look at well, what we think of as weeds in, in even in the United States that came over from quote-unquote Europe, a lot of those are originally Asian steppe species or Eurasian steppe species that were maybe pre-adapted to sort of rocky, sandy conditions like you'd see in a city. And so they were pre-adapted to come over to, to, to even here, to our cities, let's say. I remember seeing um, lamb's quarters as an example of that. I did an article for Grid once about rock doves, aka pigeons, that sort of the, they're so widely distributed by people and live so much in our habitations and our cities um, that it might be hard to pin down where exactly they original which rocky cliffs in yeah. Europe they're originally from. Um, and so inspired by my most recent few trips to the Y to go swimming and the locker room, I was bringing up uh, <laughs> you know, things you think about when you're taking a shower and you're into wildlife is looking at the wall and looking at that little fly sitting there. Um, And so I was thinking about drain flies. The
2: one with parallel venation?
1: Parallel. I know, we're looking at the Wikipedia page. Um, I read a few other things about them. These are are small, fuzzy-looking flies that look like moths. turns out the fuzz is an adaptation to sort of aquatic or or to being around water where um, it helps repel water. So yeah. if you ever tried yeah. to flush one of these down the drain or like wash down the drain, it doesn't work. Apparently, it'll crawl back out and fly away.
3: A superhero with like shoot flame at them and it just like bows around them and they stand there all boldly. Now <laughs> that
1: would be a badass little fly
3: <laughs> force field. Shield. Um, yeah, totally.
1: For all we know, they could be evolving that trait right now. Um, if we try to use if we try to use flamethrowers to eradicate them, we might select for the flame resistant. Drain
2: let's get started. Um, I got a I'll bet their little hairs would shrivel up like the hairs on my arm with a cigarette lighter.
1: Or, yeah, we'll do that experiment. Right now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's, uh, let's pass. On. And uh, so these are things I've always thought was kind of harmless. I wonder, like, one of my best friends has like this ongoing, raging, an ongoing war against the drain flies of his kitchen.
0: Are they going psycho to, to combat the psycho
1: today in their <laughs> house? Their family the is so a psycho today. But I have a
2: question. Yeah, does synanthrope Necessarily mean that there's a commensalist relationship between these two organisms. So, does a, a um, if the relationship is synanthropic, uh, does that organism necessarily have to provide a benefit to humans? Right. Or is it? Or can they just be kind of a nuisance? Not really a parasite. Just I think a nuisance. it's just.
1: I think it's the latter. I mean, I think it's that they can just be living around. They 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 live in our places. Um, is my understanding of it. So we, we, we were beginning our discussion of synanthropy and with the drain fly. And you want to
0: do a, a synanthropic animal uh, organism of the, of the episode?: I
1: think I want to do that. yeah. So like we'll see. Like, we do things like pigeons, like, like uh, squirrels.:
0: squirrels. This would be a really cool suggestion that our, our, our listeners can send us <laughs> so hey
1: if you've got an interest it's a perfect point at urbanwildlifecast at gmail you can send us your suggestion of a synanthrope for us to, to talk about I've been particularly fascinated by things that we think of at least here as native wildlife that are beco- that that are that become sort of synanthropic around us so thinking of like possums and raccoons or squirrels like you said um, gray squirrels are you know we're here before yeah. Any humans got here probably. Um, and yet they have a they 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 do really yeah. well so, around our cities. Another, another so, great oh sorry, no go ahead. I was going to say a great
2: example of synanthropic uh, organisms and birds are these birds that like eastern phoebe, chimney swift, birds that chimney swift use, use utilize man-made structures. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know when the last time I was I found an eastern phoebe nest on a natural cliff. Yeah, like yeah, they're almost entirely yeah, yeah
0: trail <laughs> yeah they're like they uh, trail chaos and in bri- like stone bridges over like creeks and parks. So
3: I'm glad you brought that up because maybe since this word is so interesting, we should either find out where the definition lies or or develop where that may lie. It's, because think about it, like American woodcock, that species has been around for a very long time, and some argue about what they did when pre. Pre-invasive worm species. Sorry, um, <laughs> coqu- that was a
1: ringtone. In case you hadn't guessed, go ahead. <laughs> of
3: what? Of a coqui, an endangered coqui frog in southeastern Puerto Rico. There you go. Coqu- That's how we roll. Guam okay. Coqu- oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back to drain flies because
0: in my invertebrate <laughs> zoology class, my professor brought in a a mystery animal, and and he gave. A um, he'd give you he'd let you like t- remove your another one of your lowest quiz grades to identify this mystery animal, and I I was the one that got it.
1: Was it a drain fly? It was a drain fly. There you go. Got, oh, yeah. it was
0: a, it was larvae that he ha- he got out of his son's fish tank, like up in the well, qu-
1: you ID'd the larvae. Yep,
0: wow. like a
3: boss. Jeez, right, boss. So I how- missed him. I would, like came late. I so went, wait, so hold on, so that is commensal because that larvae actually <laughs> benefited <Medicares. it> or, <laughs> did it. or did it because I actually got so
0: enthralled with identifying this that I actually like lost track of time and came in 10 minutes late to a meeting, a board department meeting. Synanthropic organism
1: but Let's talk about some rattlesnakes. Let's talk about rattlesnakes. Yeah. Rattlesnakes. So this is this is sort of like fanboy stuff now from for Billy um, and for Mike it turns out that we, is a long story how we got in touch with the guy, but there's this book, Landscape with Reptile, which came out a while, like, I don't know, I can look this up, but let's say in the 90s, and it's hard to know how to categorize it. It's a sort of a history, natural history, of rattlesnakes in Massachusetts, and specifically this population that occurs right next to Boston in the Blue Hills. And it's this wonderful book where it looks at sort of, na- the, like I'm saying, the natural history of the rattlesnakes, talks about the landscape, the place, um, and it talks about sort of how humans have lived with and tried to kill rattlesnakes and have successfully killed a lot of them. The title, it's funny,
0: it's very appropriate for the Urban Wildlife Podcast because it's Landscape with Reptiles, Rattlesnakes in an Urban World.
1: There you go. You know, it's the kind of thing when you're a fan of a book, you can't imagine that, someone who wrote such a cool book would want to talk to you. But, hey, we tried, and we actually got to talk to, to Thomas Palmer. Um, and so what we're going to listen to in a second is the interview with Thomas Palmer. Some stuff, you know, we can't talk about everything, or we can't include everything, when we talk for like an hour in the interview. But, you know, he starts off with something real, which sort of is really simple, but it kind of blew my mind, um, which was the point that humans lived in New England, you know, right around when glaciers were there, and as soon as when they, they were seated, we assume, Right. I'm not assuming. We have evidence of it, um, and they lived there when New England was probably like tundra. And as the forests grew in, and the rattlesnakes basically would have would have shown up much later than the humans. So there were millennia of humans, you know, living there as rattlesnakes sort of gradually moved in and lived there, and they only got wiped out. You know when when sort of European culture showed up. Um, it's just sort of pointing out that our relationship with them is definitely sort of a culturally mediated relationship. It isn't. It isn't necessary that humans can't get along with rattlesnakes. Um, and so that was sort of the part we didn't get to. And now I'm going to switch gears and we'll start listening to
4: Thomas.
5: How'd you get into writing a? I'm not even sure how to categorize it. Sort of a history, natural history book about rattlesnakes.
4: Well, I've always been a herper, uh, somebody who's interested in finding reptiles and amphibians from quite a young age. And I never outgrew it, and uh, as an adult... Neither have I, which I yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, as an adult, uh, I learned that there was a relic population of rattlesnakes outside Boston, and uh, it became a quest of sorts to try to find them. I eventually did, but as I was doing that, I became interested in the area and their background and so forth. And at that time, I was a novel writer. And being a novel writer means you have to stay at home and think up things. And this was refreshing to actually go out looking for facts on the ground. And uh, the book grew out of my quest, I guess. I thought, I need another project. This is actually quite interesting to me, and I can use these animals as a sort of lens to look at what's happened to the landscape over the last four or 500 years.
5: And I've been to Boston. I don't think I've ever stopped or looked closely at the Blue Hills. um, Mm -hmm. For people who aren't familiar, set the scene. What are the the Blue Hills and and how they relate to the Boston metropolitan area?
4: Yeah, Boston, like uh, most American cities, has a beltway around it. But in Boston, it's interrupted by the Atlantic Ocean, so it actually forms a sea. And it's open to the east where the water is. And if you look at it on a map, it's a little bit of a misshapen sea because the bottom arm actually juts out southerly more than you would expect. It kind of is offset a few miles. And the reason for that is it couldn't be a perfect sea because there's this chain of high rocky hills that discourage highway building. And they're about seven miles long. And at the east end, you can see the water. At the west end is Blue Hill, which was once called Massachusetts. Uh, That is, the Blue Hills, and were turned into a park in 1896, a regional park, uh, in part because the land was quite cheap. It was high and rocky and hard to develop. And that park became a refuge for these animals. Uh, Not deliberately, it just happened that that was their habitat. So that was seven miles of continuous exposed cracked rock that they could use for denning. And the presence of that long east-west ridge gave them quite a large refuge at a time when people were killing them wherever they could find them. And that went on a long time. So in general, they were distributed throughout the state in all rocky areas to begin with. But now they have dwindled just to a few areas where the habitat was particularly suitable. And uh, the Blue Hills turned out to be one of the best of those areas. And if you want to find more, you have to travel 100 miles west across the Connecticut River to find them again. So they have been islanders here, isolated for uh, centuries, basically, and beleaguered but persistent. And every generation of humans who has grown up around them has seen them a little differently depending on the cultural moment. So uh, that became what I thought was an interesting story to tell.
5: So Thousands. how long does it take to get there from Boston? Ten yeah. miles, okay.
4: Ten miles from the State House is
5: Neat. The Blue Hills. Neat.
4: Yeah. Inside. I wish Word we had rattlesnake
5: ten miles from here. <laughs> <laughs>
4: yes, I agree. You know, it, you might have parklands that would furnish their appropriate habitat. they As far as their diet, they're not demanding. They can eat any warm-blooded prey of the right size. They eat songbirds, particularly they like rodents. Rodents are probably the main um, diet item, and certainly those are rarely available. No, we have
5: plenty of mice and chipmunks, so
4: yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, so they were not limited by habitat before their trouble started. Uh, There was quite a bit of habitat. So many rare species are dependent on rare habitats. These were not, and um, it may be that they would not be called a rare species, namely timber rattlesnakes. If you were in the heart of the Appalachian, say, from Pennsylvania or maybe the Hudson Valley southward, there are still widespread areas where they exist. Uh, so it's unlikely they'll be placed on a federal endangered list because you can't really make a strong species disin- distinction between the snakes here and those, say, in uh, Great Smokies. But yeah. as, as far as I know, around the margins of their original range, they have dwindled hugely. In New England, I believe every state, they're on the endangered species list now. How did that happen? Well, it was basically people killing snakes, I believe. It was people who felt that there was some kind of advantage to doing that. And who were these people? They were mostly farmers. They were people who occupied the land very closely for generations, beginning with the white settlement of uh, eastern North America and continuing right up until, I don't know, maybe 100, 150 years ago, small farms became economic and the land began to grow up in the woods again. But during that long interval, at least 200 years in most places, everywhere was occupied and everywhere included people who knew whether or not the rattlesnakes were around and who also knew how to kill them. They're vulnerable because they're tied to their birthplaces or to their denning sites, I should say, these yeah. rocky places where they gather in communally to overwinter. And because they do aggregate there, if you go there the right time when they're vulnerable, you can kill them in numbers. And the, this species is what ecologists call r selected, meaning it has fairly long adult life and good adult survivorship, but not a high reproductive potential. Right. Yeah. yeah as they're you like know, turtles. Yeah. That's right. A female timber rattler will probably only give birth three or four times in her life because she has to take two or three years in between births to build up her fat reserves so she can become pregnant again. And in those times when she does give birth, the babies are born alive and there's no more than... Um, 12 or 15 at most. Uh, It used to be that once a rattlesnake became an adult, it was pretty well equipped to defend itself, and the adults generally made it from year to year, but that's no longer the case. I think nowadays, not because farmers are killing them in the dens, but because they do not move very quickly and they just can't get across a well-traveled road without
5: getting oh
4: uh,
5: yes, yeah. no I, yeah I, I, when you see them on the road from a perspective they're just yes. they're moving in a street they're, they're, compare them to something like a black racer which sort of yes. scurries across the road really That's fast right. a, a rattlesnake yeah. just is very deliberate <laughs> yeah <laughs> straightforward they motion yeah in your book you go through sort of the in some cases the bounties but even before the bounties sort of accounts of people going out And sort of as an event, as a party or or what have you, or just as something that they need to do is going out and and killing the snakes at the den. Why do you think they – why did they persist in the Blue Hills as opposed to other hills elsewhere in southern Uh, England?
4: Because there were so many dens in the Blue Hills, because there was so much rock, seven-mile-long south-facing ridge, that the people who went to kill them never found all the dens. That's my speculation. I can't prove that's the case but I would guess it's so. And as you go west in this state, curiously, there are certain east-west ridges that are now refugia for them, like the Blue Hills, for instance, um, uh, I believe Mount Holyoke, uh, a few other places. So yeah, I I think that effort was pretty constant across the whole state, but the results varied depending on the difficulty of finding all the animals. I think if you have an area with just say, one isolated mountain, you know where the dens would be on that mountain, most likely. And so you could find them all quite quickly. But it was a little different in the Blue Hills. They were widespread in Massachusetts. They were involved in the founding of Boston because, according to John Winthrop's journal, the colonists abandoned their first settlement in what's now known as Chelsea, one, because there was no good spring for water there, but two, because there were rattlesnakes. At least he said huh. that the place they did settle, namely the Shawna Peninsula, the new place they moved, he said that it was free of wolves, mosquitoes, and rattlesnakes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can respect yeah. the mosquitoes part. Um, but <laughs> And he carried uh, so around a, a, an herb that the Indians had told him would um, would be an antidote for a rattler bite.
5: Well, in the book you catalog the bites uh, the bites people have gotten in the in the in the area from rattlesnakes, and yeah. for something that on on the individual an individual rattlesnake is definitely you know, I don't want anybody getting any other ideas, it's definitely a very dangerous animal if you get bitten by it. If you actually, as you did, look out and try to add up you know, over time how many people have actually been killed by them. It's horrible when it does happen, but there don't seem to be very many mortalities. Yeah, um, it was very
4: it, it, it was surprising to me how hard it was to document any actual instances. I looked very hard and uh it was very difficult. I certainly couldn't find any in the last hundred years, even though the Blue Hills Park probably now has a hundred thousand visitors a year. Uh Jeez. yeah, in fact I was not able to document a single rattler bite in the history of the park. But as you say, an adult rattler has enough venom to kill three adult people. So why is it that people were not dying of rattlesnake's bites? Uh, that was a question I tried to answer. Number one, very few are bitten. Number two, a defensive bite is often what they call a dry bite, meaning no venom is injected. There were pe- readers in other parts of the country who objected to my conclusions because I think in the southeast and maybe um, Mississippi Valley, there are more deaths from timber rattler bites, but most of those, curiously, seem to have been people who have been handling the snakes in church. You know, that's... Oh, yeah. yeah that, those that those seems, are famous
5: incidents, but...
4: Yeah, but that, that seems to be the but major that
5: this is a of snake, sorry, But this is a species yeah. of snake... Sorry, this is a species of snake which people can handle them in church... And handle several of them routinely, and still, it isn't like everyone who handles them dies. It's, That's right, it's, yeah.
4: It's a it's, rare incident. Yeah. It even with news. them. So it, yeah.
5: It, it, so it, so even if you are actively handling them routinely, right. <laughs> like yes. it's hard, to, hard yeah. to get killed by one.
4: Yeah, and uh, right. occasionally somebody who's keeping a snake will be killed. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's just quite rare. Uh, I think... Something like estimates are all venomous snake bites nationwide. Something like three deaths a year, maybe maximum. That includes all species. So yeah. it is it is remarkably difficult to get killed by a deadly snake, apparently. And it, so, it sort of sets up
5: the disproportionate effort that went into wiping them out.
4: Yeah. Um, um, or that
5: went into trying to kill them.
4: That's right. It's... Uh, you get the feeling that there was something beyond simple practicality that sure. went into this—a uh, religious element, perhaps, or a sexual element, or something. People got a big kick out of killing them, and they also believed they were doing good in one way or another. Yeah, you, know, you might say, "Well, if they can kill anyone anytime, why shouldn't they be removed?" And you know that's a reasonable question, but the actual risk is. Very, very small. In the park, why haven't people been bitten? Because the snakes are big enough that if they're lying across a trail, you will see them. And they look scary, so you're not likely to pick them up. And because the snakes do not pursue people or fly through the air, you have to get <laughs> yeah, you have to get quite close to to get bitten. Yeah, and, I, and I mean, I in would, the United
5: States, yeah. it's, uh, it's say, generally speaking, just following up on your point about the total numbers of people who die, um, get bitten and that, that it is people who handle them or who try to kill them yes. who predominantly get bitten. There definitely are some people who accidentally step on a snake, but they're far outnumbered by the people who are trying to do something with the
4: snake. Yeah. In fact, when I wanted to come up with a scenario of somebody being killed because I had no actual facts to report, <laughs> yeah, I did arrange for a snake to be stepped on. I think that is... That is the way to get hurt, if, blamelessly, so to speak. And yeah. uh, how are you going to step on a snake without seeing it? Well, if it's night or perhaps if you're going through heavy brush, uh, you yeah. might do it as well.
5: I, I have but, nearly stepped on rattlesnakes. But yes. It's always it, been
4: going yeah. through heavy
5: brush and, and, yeah. and in situations where no, no ordinary hiker would be putting themselves. You know? <laughs> yeah,
4: that is quite a experience. You know, when that happens to me, I feel like it hasn't happened often, but when when it does happen, I feel like I've used up my luck. I'm going home. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just curious
5: about about copperheads as well. It's um, you know other herpers I've I've talked to have said that you know actually they're more scared of stepping on a copperhead um, because they're even better camouflaged and you don't notice them. And you yeah. made the point in the book: no one even knew they were there for a really long
4: time. Yeah, they um, were more cryptic but- for sure. Yeah, huh. you know, um, I would say they're less poisonous. I mean, that's what most accounts say. Uh, but they are harder to see. They are smaller. They probably can't deliver as much venom. Yeah, I have a tr- hard time finding them. I think here in uh, Boston, they are at the northeasternmost point of their sure. North American range, and they're just as scarce as rattlesnakes, but maybe not for the same reason. I'm I'm thinking that they are more intolerant of long winters than rattlers because their original range was probably 200 miles further south than rattlers. I think there are some in the Connecticut Valley in Massachusetts, but I don't think they get north of, say, Albany in New York. And in Westchester County, they have um, persisted in more suburban areas than the rattlers have. And so I think they're more equipped to deal with urbanization than the Rattlers. They can remain hidden more successfully in smaller areas. But um, there's something about very long winters, I think, that um, excludes them. Uh, There was one uh, this summer who hung out under a hedge beside a swimming pool in a backyard (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, was a neighborhood snake, and uh, the family had seen it several times, and they had young kids, and so they were naturally concerned. And I went over there once to try to catch it, but it had—it was at the base of a very dense U hedge, an old hedge that was cut, sure, cut short. But it was—you couldn't see into it from above, and uh, the one grab I made, he ducked away, and. What do you know? The homeowner was very resourceful. He went on the Internet. He got a grab stick, and he caught it himself with a grab stick. What he did he do with it? To, my buddy James went and got it, put it in a five-gallon bucket and sure. released it. Yeah, and okay. um, he also gave them advice about what, how to landscape their backyard so the snake would not be attracted. For instance, sure, sure. take out that very dense <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
6: U-hedge.
4: Yeah, and I think they did, but it was remarkable how, how thoughtful they were about the whole thing. They didn't. Their idea wasn't to kill the animal, but just to make the yard safe. And I was impressed, because many people even today will say, there's snakes in the Blue Hills? I'm not going there. You know, they have a sort of built-in reaction that prevents them from thinking further about it. You mentioned
5: a couple um, a couple incidents, and I think it's illustrative lesser of sort of evolving attitude toward the snakes. But um, talk a little bit about the uh, the the two incidents with police officers and the the rattlers in the Blue Hills.
4: Well, this shot is and just snake. to set the scene.
5: What had happened yeah. is that a, an, an officer had been riding his horse in the park and
4: yes. um, shot a rattlesnake that he found on the trail. Right. Right. The horse named okay. Chico shied away <laughs> from the snake. And the officer spotted it and pulled out his revolver and shot it to death. Uh, You would think that's pretty dangerous in itself in a rocky area to be shooting things. But he was later quoted as saying, well, uh, my horse shied. I could have fallen off and broken my head. He thought he was removing a dangerous and malevolent, uh, life-threatening individual from circulation, which you could say, is one thing cops are for. So he was totally nonplussed when he was told that it was a protected endangered species and it was illegal to kill it. And so a debate grew up around that about whether he had been right to do what he did. And I I don't think he changed his mind. Uh, Certainly, I don't think he was uh, reprimanded or anything. But I think the debate was useful in that it brought out some of these questions. Well, how dangerous are they? And, uh, Even if they are dangerous, is it better to have them than not to have them? Yeah, it happened again at another um, spot near the park. And both those incidents were like 25, 30 years ago, and I haven't heard of any since. So it may be that the police are now aware that they're not supposed to be shooting the animals.
5: What I wanted to just touch on a little bit is you mentioned roads. Um, What are other... Maybe things have emerged since when you wrote the book, but what are other threats uh, to
4: the, to the to Blue Hills rattlesnakes? I would say that, that is the primary one, getting run over okay. on the roads. And that mostly happens to the males, and it mostly happens around Labor Day because that's the time of year when the females start to pump out these pheromones or um, chemical fragrances that are attracted to the males That's when the breeding occurs late in the summer. And at at that time, the males range widely. They uh, crawl all over the place trying to pick up the scent trails of the females. So they crawl across roads quite a bit. Sure. And that's when they're... So uh, usually in the Blue Hills, usually about one of them is run over every year. And that may not Mm -hmm. be enough to be a problem, particularly because they're males. What is the history of the blue hills population? I don't know. It's hard to say. They've been known to be there for hundreds of years, but as far as counting, that's quite difficult. I okay. have my Yeah, I have my own um observations starting like in the um mid-80s, and since that time, I have seen less of them at the times when you're more li- most likely to see them, namely at emergence when they remo- come out of the den. Sure. In the early years, at some dens, I might see as many as five or six snakes, and that doesn't happen anymore. I see fewer than okay. that. Yeah, and so I don't know if I'm seeing anything that's real or not. It's my impression, though, that there are fewer. And you have also okay. heard heard about this uh, fungal disease that killed quite a few, starting to yeah. years ago. Yeah, that is a mysterious thing that caused them to reappear on the ground far later than you would expect to see them, like not just October 15th, but after Thanksgiving or even huh. Jan- yeah, January, they would come out of the dens on a warm day as if they were trying to heal themselves with warmth because... They had terrible problems with shedding with big lesions, starting at the head usually but anywhere in the body, where um, a fungus was growing in the skin. And the snakes that came out at that time generally were not seen again in the spring. They uh, – Yeah, they no, seen, when, when snakes
5: yeah. snakes get sick, this is for background, yeah. that, that they they're, they can't produce their own heat, they'll, they'll bask a lot. To try to raise your temperature. So that's what we're, yeah. we're, we're referring to. And it's sad. It's, it's something that I know has gotten <clears throat> more and more attention in Pennsylvania just with, was talking to a researcher, um, recently who was, who was mentioned, who I was sort of asking, hey, is this thing really real here? Is it, yeah. uh-huh. um, is it something that people are getting all up in arms about because of the amphibian, sort of the amphibian catastrophe yes. with, uh, yeah. with the, their own fungal problems? And he's like, no, no. Unfortunately, in, in Pennsylvania, we, uh, we are seeing some, Really big, high-quality dens um, where they're seeing what you're describing. Where you'll yep. see a lot of a lot of sick snakes conspicuously basking, and then you don't see those snakes again. Mm-hmm. So it seems like they're getting sick and they're dying. So with something that has the like you were describing, sort of the the very slow reproductive patterns, that it's that's uh, anything that that knocks out yes. extra adults is a scary thing.
4: Yeah. Well. Um, uh Many snakes did die out of this local population. On the other hand, not so many sick ones are being s- seen now. So we wonder, huh. uh, is it true that the more vulnerable ones have um, been cropped off and the ones that are left are more resistant? That would be, the, I think, the way a normal population responds to disease. Uh, at any rate, it didn't kill them all, but it brought them closer to the edge because there are fewer yeah. now. And... Uh, you always wonder, is there any long-term future for these small, isolated populations? Right. Most right. biologists would say, well, you're just much more susceptible to going below the zero number with any kind of perturbation. And I think that's correct.
5: No, that's it's the old island effect that they can yeah, and um it.
4: Right. So in contrast to so many species that have rebounded as the hunting pressure or other pressures have, uh, decreased deer, turkey, fisher, bear. Were so all ma- yeah. yeah, so many animals are now more common than they have been for a long time. The snakes are not rebounding and uh I think that's a little bit of a mystery why they don't seem able to rebuild their populations uh where they exist. I don't know of any rattler populations in the northeast have been increasing anywhere. Uh sure. Yeah, it's uh so that becomes a kind of management question. We say that the wildlife belongs to the people as a sort of legal definition. We want to preserve the value that every species have. That means we have to keep them from disappearing. How do you do that? How do you how do you change the circumstances so that they can increase? So I don't know, there's a, a sort of a flavor of melancholy about their story. Is yeah, there certainly is. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a happy note to end on. I'm not sure i got yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, right. it is wonderful that so many people make it kind of their business to learn about these animals and see them. We'll
5: say that, yeah. Yeah.
4: yeah. Um, there are quite a few. There is in, in Around Boston there's something called the Brotherhood of Snake Watchers. Who are huh. these people? Yeah, it's an informal group and you can't the only way you can become a member is if a member goes to a snake den and sees you there. That means there's nothing to be hidden from you, that you know where to go and what to look for. <laughs> so that other person has to be welcomed. That's through. a very
5: clever um, <laughs> clever intake system. It's something that other people who study other things or, let's say, are birders might not appreciate how secretive and cagey herpers are.
4: Yeah, um, it's, it's a, because
5: you worry that somebody's going to clean out the den that you you enjoy it, observing. Yeah, or, it
4: could happen very with only a few visits. That could be the end. If and you know the people who belong to the brotherhood communicate and uh, share information. If they see somebody with a, a pillowcase or a snake hook, uh, immediately that lights up the wires.
5: Um, but uh, I just wanted to I, I want to wind up and and. Um, and to say thank you very much. I appreciate this. Yeah. This is it, it just such a pleasure to, to be able to talk to you yeah. and to talk about the book and about the rattlesnakes.
3: Okay. I've
2: yeah, always
1: said crotalis. I'm sorry, but the knife's right here. I'll be careful.
2: Crotalis. Um, all right. I just had a quick question about population genetics and the spatial ecology of these rattlesnakes. Um, there's a study just recently showing in timber rattlers and also in copperheads that females are able to breed uh, asexually when ecological conditions uh, prevent sexual reproduction. So a female can reproduce sexually when conditions are when they're suitable, and then when if there aren't any males around, uh, facultative parthenogenesis is the term, and they can. They can uh, fertilize their own eggs and and uh, produce genetic clones of themselves. So this affects the population genetics. And my question is, how does this uh, ability of rattlesnakes to breed asexually how does that affect the effective population size? So the question is, like, where is that event horizon? Where is that threshold in a population of animals that can reproduce sexually and asexually beyond which uh, genetic drift and and uh, other inbreeding effects cause that population to spiral into oblivion. Yeah. So if there's a continued
3: simplification
2: of the genes in general
3: that are that constitute this population, if you add facultative parts of the genesis, you're saying,
2: are you questioning what does that? Yeah. Do? Another thing. Does that like exacerbate? That the it can exacerbate the. Or does it make yeah. the population more resilient?
1: We have a few assumptions here that that they're reproducing partially well, the genetic. One thing which so is a possibility. To... Yeah, we have, we have well, I'm really curious the as
2: to what
0: environmental stress was your mother under, for her to to, use, to spawn you that way. Mm.
1: Thanks, yeah. Tony, for the. the all right. Um, so, because um, I'm going to bet that Matt is not a clone of his mother, um, uh, so probably was not I'm, I'm much hairier. <laughs> than right? probably... Slightly more than
3: half of him is mom, but not all of him.
1: <laughs> I'm loving this discussion, but I want to get us back to the overall question of, like, that we have rattlesnakes or any animal that is is in – that doesn't actually live in what we think of as an urban place, but is urban in the sense of it being surrounded by suburbs and city, um, and so is totally cut off from anything else. I mean, I think a lot of our parks, even in Philadelphia or other big cities, where we're really proud of these big urban wild parks – but if they're totally isolated, then you, you have an island um, mm-hmm. where the, well, I don't know, the, um, let's try to think of something else besides a rattlesnake, but some beetle, who knows, or some butterfly sure. that lives in a meadow in the middle of a park. Much I, easier for that to happen, isolation with
3: a, with a butterfly or something. I yeah, guess. and
1: then the thing can't fly 10 miles to the next meadow, where, you know, once you get past the suburbs, maybe there's a meadow every 500 yards. Yeah. Um, so so this is something that's sort of, I think, in, inherent to urbanization that you have sort of urban and suburban landscapes chopping up other landscapes. Right. Um, and so we've got that here with these rattlesnakes. And on the one hand, it's fabulous that these snakes are right there. On the other hand, it's like them being right there is what makes it, or makes them vulnerable to my grandkids not being able to see them.
3: Well, watching the end of anything is can be pretty depressing. Yeah. I think, I honestly... The I don't think the genetic isolation is going to be the undoing of these animals. I think it's going to be human direct, more direct human influences. You know, I obviously am referencing that. I'm speculating that there might have been some isolation prior to a city being, yeah. suburbs being built around it. But the roads, you know, people collecting, Road. you know, th- these sorts of things have a, a great. And then there's you know there's other elements that are directly related to the fact that people are living around there that are likely causing second- and third-degree issues. You and know pathogens. I
1: mean? Yeah, you might, but really all you need is the roads, damn it. I mean, like, yeah, right. <laughs> these things are something we talked about, and Mike was talking about, when we are talking about sort of how they move. Yeah. They move in a straight line, really slow. Um, really slow. Mm-hmm. And when they
3: try to start... To serpentine to move in a serpentine fashion, they don't move anywhere. You know, like if you ever startle a big, especially a gravid female, you yeah. startle one. Even where there's more traction than a road, like in a on the forest floor. No, but as they try to escape and they start serpentine, they look like the earth is moving underneath them because they're not going anywhere. Yeah, but, you know, they don't. They, they they're not good at moving. They're not the most.
1: Them. They're not nimble. Everything about their life they're history not is
3: evolved for ambush predation of small mammals. Yeah. So that animal is built to chill. It's meant to sit and built chill. To chill. You know? Built to um, chill. Built to chill is my
0: herpetological, um, referencing built to swill tribute band. <laughs>
6: <laughs> you really
0: pisses me off. Have you seen the movie Lone Survivor? No. no. They're like falling, they're like, they mentioned rattlesnakes in it, and they're like falling down a cliff while they're fighting the Taliban. <laughs> and, like, a, a, t- they're falling on a towel slope with a towel back, and there's a rattlesnake. And it's, like, and it makes it like, the rattle that, like, rattlesnakes don't make. Yeah. You know, they, they sound like a buzz. Where it sounds like a maraca or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it like a, yeah. I'm like, yo, look. Americas. The Americas is the only place that you, you find produce. Produce. Rattlesnakes. And why can't we have that? You know? Yeah. We're, we're the smaller landmass in the terms of the world. So we have a little bit less diversity, well, except for birds in South America, where it's the bird capital of the world and frogs. Well, like, and but yo, Salman. Salman. <laughs> but like yo, like you know, we don't have tigers, we don't Raps. have giraffes, you know, we don't have elephants. Well, we got rattlesnakes; they're awesome. Why can't they just be ours? Why well, well, they yeah. got to be putting them in
1: Afghanistan?
0: People I want my I want, right, my I want my hickory have have trees
3: rattle. and my rattlesnakes. Yeah, yeah. I like hickory Is that What are saying? Yeah, yeah, well, that's North, North American pride. There. So
1: we're gonna so we're gonna jump next. Um, Wait, but, hold on. Uh, okay,
3: I was gonna say something. So wait, we talked about roads and how they're devastating and how this is isolated. Why the hell hasn't somebody developed an initiative to create wildlife corridors
2: and prevent this terrestrial snake that doesn't climb well from getting onto the roads? Maybe it comes down to the difficulty of, it's sure, it's a charismatic species, but it's one that strikes fear into people for, un, for reasons that they, they shouldn't be afraid, but it... It's just, it's a, nope, I don't buy it, and here's not, why. It's not a charismatic, uh, it's not like it. an elephant. Look, man, yeah. yeah, I know, look,
3: I mean, I've radio-tracked timber rattlesnakes in the Pine Barrens where just going to and coming, you know, entering and exiting the site, there's a picture of a little girl and a picture of a, the meanest-looking rattlesnake, and it says that New Jersey wants to... Protect this homes really for this, but not for your daughter. It's,
1: it's you know? a, this is so a battle of the but, but here's the
3: thing: game? you can use that to say, "Hey, we want to make sure people are safe. Let's keep the animals where they belong in their habitat, and let's isolate the human, the built environment, from that." It's, you know, it's, it's really
1: hard. To, it's really hard. You know the answer. It's really hard to do, and people don't care enough about rattlesnakes.
3: But there are people in the Northeast that care greatly about it. We do, we do, and I. Have friends and that do. But I'm talking to be closer. People in New Hampshire and Massachusetts, apparently not critical mass though.
1: I, I'm gonna bet this is not our last episode about um, the Blue Hill rattlesnakes, considering how many questions we have generally... Trip.
3: Hell yeah! It's five hours away. Fellas. We were just
1: talking about this. Yeah, it's five hours Let's away. Let's go Memorial
3: Day that. dressed in red, white, and blue with big tires. And no, what we 15. gotta get
1: because this isn't something I want to reclaim. All of us with Don't Tread on Me apparel. Oh, I'm down, dude.
3: Um, yeah. Because America!
1: <laughs> we're not exactly Tea Party types here. We were. It's fine if you are. You can still listen into the podcast. We're liberals that own guns. But <laughs> at least some of us. Um, not me, but Tony is. Uh, and, a little bit Mike, and A little, little bit A little Michael, and Michael. And Michael. But, but the point is, is I, I, I want rattlesnakes and the Don't Tread on Me symbol to be uniformly American. Um, and so that's why I want to reclaim it.
6: Anne Stengel, I'm a PhD candidate at UMass Amherst in the Organismic and Evolutionary Biology uh, program, and then I'm also the uh, grant coordinator for the um, the Snake Fungal Disease um, Multi-State Grant. I'm radio tracking in the Blue Hills right now. Uh, previously, okay. I had radio tracked a much larger population in Western Mass for several years. Yeah, and, I mean, it's very urban, you know, Route 90, Interstate 93 is on the edge of their site. So we've certainly had a few road kills this year, and they do every year. As part mm-hmm. of what I'm looking at is movement patterns within this population, so how far do they go, because it is such a restricted area compared to most populations. Um, and then what kind of vegetation are they using? Where are they foraging? And uh, one of the key things that I'm, that I'm doing, that I'm excited about, is I'm looking at snakes with snake fungal disease and snakes without to see if the disease is altering their behavior patterns or their habitat use or survivorship um, so you can track, you know, a little more long-term what the disease is actually doing to the snakes. Is it too early to to comment on what you're observing? Uh, I mean, with most of the snakes that I've tracked, and this was true for when I was in Western Mass as well, the the lesions do often seem to get better with each shed. Um, we've had a few that haven't, but, yeah, I, we've had them improve greatly over a year. Sometimes it seems to take a couple of years. Um, I haven't noticed any major behavioral differences yet, but I also haven't analyzed any of the data yet from this year. You know, we're not seeing, the, you know, the massive white-nosed bat wipeout right, yet. Right. Hopefully it stays that way. <laughs>
4: I agree. I agree.
6: So for those of us who don't
5: know what it's like to radio track um, rattlesnakes, tell us, talk a little bit about um, how that works.
6: Well, snakes, unfortunately, they don't have a neck, and you can't put the little like <laughs> bird backpack on them. So the radios have to be surgically implanted inside the snake, uh, which means they have to come into the lab, and we have to anesthetize them, and you know, it's a full surgical procedure, um, but then we can really some a day or two afterwards when you go out um, with a receiver and track the signal. But you have to, you know, follow through and bushwhack through the um, the forest to find the the snake. Um, now you're now, now where you're looking at them is is a
5: park. I mean, it's a place where people go hiking and everything. Um, yep. Yeah. One of the things I've noticed sometimes when I have found copperheads or rattlesnakes um, in parks is just I've been amazed at at how people don't see what I think is a perfectly obvious snake sitting
6: there. Um, <laughs> I know. You'd be surprised. I mean, they blend in. If you don't have the eye for it, you're not looking for them. You know, most people walk right by them.
5: What kind of attitudes have you encountered if uh, when people find out what you're doing?
6: Usually pretty positive. Um, I mean, when I run into people hiking on trails, you know, they're already – outdoorsy nature people, you know, I've had a few there like, oh, you know, I don't, I'm not a huge snake fan, but that's, you know, awesome that you can study them, and, you know, at least on the field, I don't run into negative comments.
5: I imagine you spend your winters in the lab, and and yeah, you're, not much use tracking rattlesnakes in in December, I guess.
6: (laughs) Yeah, the snakes hibernate in the den, and I hibernate in the lab. (laughs) I think the snakes Um, get the better deal.
5: Alright, thank you very much. I'll be in touch
6: later with uh, when we actually get this stuff posted, okay? Great, great. Thank you. Alright, thanks. Enjoy the lab. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye.
1: So, we just listened to Anne talk about um, her research. Uh, On the one hand, it's heartening to see, to hear that there are, are, that a lot of the snakes, maybe most of the snakes get better. She mentioned a few of them dying, so... Maybe I'm trying to reconcile an apparent contradiction here, or or, or sort of one observer seeing a lot of them die, and people we've talked to seeing a lot of them die. Um, maybe a few of them dying over time for a slow reproducing animal yields the population drop off. But it's a little more hopeful. I mean, it's something that also um, that maybe if we see a disease and we're scared about it, then we note the ones that die particularly carefully, and right. and so you know maybe maybe I would maybe someone would see. 10 of them out in an odd time of year, but you really remember the ones that had the lesions because that's what you're looking for. Um, so this is why we do... This is why you do research. Um, and so it's neat. It's a little hopeful to hear that some of them are getting better.
3: I uh, unfortunately, on the flip side, she mentioned that she sees multiple road kills. Yeah, the other part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is not surprising, you know. Yeah. She's just spending more time out there during the periods yeah. of activity. Yeah. So.
1: Um, so it's a... Yeah, so, so we'll keep our fingers crossed on that. Um, so here we are at the end. In Philly, you know, certainly, we think of timber rattlesnakes as this sort of majestic, or those of us who like them, think of us as these majestic animals of the wilderness, you know? Pine barrens or, 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 the, or pine? the Poconos. Exactly. They're, yeah. they're way out there in wild places. You know, the first thing that drew me to this is, what do you mean they're right next to a city? They're, they're 10 miles away? Well,
0: yeah. <laughs> I think 10 miles away from Boston proper. But if you've ever been in the Boston area,
3: like most of Boston isn't Boston. You yeah, know, it's, it's all like these Sarah little Kansas towns
0: State State linked like that linked yeah. together. So you know, if you
3: look at this, there's little towns linked together like a wishbone coming from Boston and surrounding both sides of Blue Hills. So it's yeah. it's
1: it's just a it's completely cut off. It's a neatly urban space or urban surrounded space. I don't know what to call it, but it's... urbanized a, space. Yeah. If this is the West
0: Coast, this would be straight up urban. You know, like <laughs> in, the e- in the East, we say, "Oh, you have a lawn. You're su- you have a tiny lawn. You're suburban." But yeah. Like, yeah. You know, like you know, you have a
3: tenth acre mowed lawn. You're you living large. You're
0: in the suburbs. Living a good life. <sighs> but yeah, so it is, this is truly urban phenomenon here this is really
3: cool
1: yeah and then sort of the but then is sort of balancing that with the downs we'll call it the downsides of urban yeah
3: (laughs) Yeah. so and you know something that hasn't been mentioned at all in either thomas's and by the way when we jumped into talking about thomas's stuff i didn't even comment just overall how what a great interview that was he's a cool guy it sounds like and a legend. Um, yeah. And, and we've just, got we've got a, sp- a really engaging I read that book a decade ago and I love it. You know, I think it's a great book. Yeah. Um, I'm but, still uh, kinda
1: tickled I got to talk to him. Yeah, it's pretty
3: rad. It's
0: a little <laughs> star The stuff. whole point of doing a podcast to like have an excuse to talk to like, our heroes. It works. <laughs> <laughs> David Attenborough
1: the
3: call soon. So soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice.
1: But yeah, Mike's go there's
3: go. I just I'm interested in how other animals in the trophic web that is the Blue Hills are, have been affected by people. Good point. Has there been, you know, like in the New York Botanical Garden, there's way too many chipmunks. You know, there's sin. Syn- Alvin, Simon. Synanthropy? Syn- is that what we're saying? Synanthropy. Syn- syn- there's a synanthropic yeah. syn- yeah. syn- yeah. phenomenon occurring mm-hmm. with chipmunks, and there, like, I mean, caps. There's so many that the, the garter, you, it's hard to find a garter snake that doesn't have a chewed off tail. I've, I saw, three, oh. on three different occasions, doing a herp survey in the New York Botanical Garden, I found chipmunks running with killed, young garter snakes in huh. their mouth. I mean, they're predating on them, you know? Wow. Um, yeah, so they
1: need some rattlesnakes to eat the chipmunks. Yeah, exactly. You know, how many times I thought
3: that? <laughs> corny jokes in my own head about it. Yeah. But, like, I'd be interested to see what the prey diversity is um, in the Blue Hills.
0: It's an interesting question. Yeah, they yeah. love eating some chipmunks, huh? That's like their main jam, right?
3: Well, small small mammals, yeah. Chip, chipmunks are definitely on the menu well, for Timorales. that kind of stuff. Yeah, the yeah. genus mice. I'm sure rabbits can be on the menu.
4: Promiscuous mouse. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> Is you Have you ever met a mouse that wasn't promiscuous? It's true. My Curtis.
1: It's the voles that are monogamous, right? <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's those zappas, It's the ones with the long tails that hold it down. Yeah. Matt's
2: about to drive how many mi- hours we talked about? A lot, Tw- twenty-five or something. Twenty. 20- well, there's a ferry. Yeah, Tony's ride. Tony's going with them. Yeah. there's a ferry ride. <laughs> so, yeah, so I'm going up to Newfoundland to do gr- uh, studies of gray-cheeked thrush, Catharus minimus. Well, so, hey, um, if everybody's
3: plugging travel, can I? Yeah, plug, go ahead. Plug yeah, mine yeah, too? honestly, yeah. Yeah, so I just took a look at it today. It's fifty-seven hours of actual driving, thirty-six hundred miles. We're going to we're gonna hit Dolly Sods to look for some endemic salamander species. Yeah. On the way to we're gonna drive through Kentucky, uh, maybe stop and do some rad things there, but kind of beeline to Southern Illinois, snake which is road. snake hot spot. Oh. We're gonna hit sna- it's not the prime time to hit Snake Road, but it's a snaky area. Um, spend two days in that area and then shoot up to. Southern Wisconsin, meet with some rad legends in ecological restoration. And eat some curds. Maybe eat some cheese curds for sure. And then, uh, and then drive directly to the Boundary Waters to do bird research as oh, well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, community-based bird research in jack pine, black spruce. Jack and pine. <laughs> yes, indeed.
1: If we're promoting travel on Sunday, I'm going to ride my bike to South Philly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Look for some rats. You're gonna keep it real,
0: wild, <laughs> it? not us real. Oh well, speaking of urban, <laughs>
3: on that theme, we're stopping in Springfield, Illinois, to look for lion snakes and crimson snakes yeah. in urban lots. Is yes. a the cheap trip? yeah. And I got backups for Curtland well, on the, on the way back because we're, we're doing marsh bird surveys in Green Bay, and then we're gonna go Kankakee Sands and Indianapolis to chill with family. Oh, Snakes in Indianapolis.
1: Next episode. Is going to be about cat tracking and urban coyotes in a city I used to live in, Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah. Eat I cats see. every day. <laughs>
3: Saying that these pheromones are being put out, and stuff. That's what um, dude said, and he's absolutely right, and I'm not contradicting that. But I'm and I'm questioning. I'm not informing. I'm.
4: I'm I just. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm, it makes me wonder if the females. Are you explaining If the I guess. so. <laughs>